Welcome to The Jolt. It's the 16th of February. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. It's Friday, so that means Kira will be joining me later to go over the week's big news and look ahead to what's happening next. We'll be talking Irish energy, Dutch grids, air quality and more. Stay tuned for that. First, let's take a look at the big climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. United States lawmakers have backed a bill that would remove the Energy Department's power to block fossil gas export permits. The House voted 224 to 200 in favour of amending the law so that only the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has a say over exports. The bill still needs to pass the Democrat-controlled Senate, and there is still the chance of a presidential veto. Check out Kira's episode from yesterday for more about this story. Estonia's new power interconnector could connect the Baltic state with Sweden instead of Finland. Estlink 3 is planned to come online in the 2030s and straddle the Gulf of Finland, but a member of Estonia's main energy firm says developers should look west towards Sweden and its cheaper power prices instead. Grid operator Ellering says that the idea isn't feasible because the cable would have to be much longer and Sweden is not interested in co-financing the project. Ellering also stated that power prices will become cheaper in the future anyway. The European Commission has approved a 7 billion euro subsidy scheme for hydrogen projects. The EU has at its disposal a special scheme called Important Projects of Common European Interest, or IPCEIs, which come with more lenient state aid rules. The main criteria is that the project must be submitted by at least four EU member countries, and the projected benefits must be even wider than that. This new hydrogen IPCEI was lodged by France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal and Slovakia. It will cover 3 gigawatts of electrolyzers, nearly 3,000 kilometers of hydrogen transport pipes, 370 gigawatt hours of storage and hydrogen terminals that can handle 6,000 tonnes per year. All the projects included within the IPCEI are expected online by 2029. Japan's government issued its first ever climate bond, raising more than $5 billion. The proceeds are earmarked for decarbonisation projects with a particular focus on heavy industry. The bonds will last 10 years and are the first instalment of an ongoing $11 billion funding round. The government is planning to raise more than $110 billion in financing this way. Another $10 billion of bonds will be issued in April. Morocco has recorded its highest ever February temperature after the mercury rose to 36.6 degrees Celsius. It breaks an existing 64-year-old record and piles even more pressure on the North African country, which is struggling with an historic drought. Last August, Morocco recorded its highest ever overall temperature a mind-melting 50.4 degrees. And finally, British power company Octopus Energy has launched the United Kingdom's first vehicle-to-grid tariff. The new scheme will allow motorists to charge their electric cars when electricity is cheap and to sell it back to the grid when demand for electrons is high. 
essentially resulting in free charging. Octopus predicts that customers who drive an average of 16,000 kilometers per year could save around 1,000 euros by allowing the automated system to manage their vehicle's power demand. There are a few caveats. Customers will have to charge for more than six hours per day and stay below 20,000 kilometers per year. Few EV models currently support bi-directional charging, but manufacturers are slowly rolling out compatible vehicles. For more on this, listen to the latest episode of Energy Enablers. There's a link in the show notes. That's it for your news updates today. Now it's time for our regular Friday feature and a closer look at what Kira and I thought were the big talking points this week. So, what have you been up to this week? Been a good week of energy and climate reporting and podcasting? It feels like quite a quiet week, so I took the time to catch up on TV, so I was watching the new series of Loki, and realised that some science fiction is actually more complicated than science. So I think I better understand nuclear than I did that series, but it was fun. The Marvel Cinematic Universe's approach to energy policy would make a good episode of one of our podcasts, I think. That would, yeah. Get Robert Downey Jr. on to talk about arc reactors or something. You see energy come up quite a lot in TV as a driving factor. I remember I was watching an episode of Doctor Who. The Doctor was like, why did you do this really stupid thing? And they were like, because it was an unlimited energy source and that's really useful for us. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't escape my work even in TV. It ruins it sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, I just want to sit down and turn my brain off. And that, well, actually, that wouldn't work because of grid permitting issues, Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, and what have you been up to in terms of the jolt? Was there anything from the news that really caught your eye this week? One of the headlines that really interested me was this call from uh, British and Irish industry associations basically saying we need an all-island approach to energy security, to decarbonizing the gas grid in Ireland. And this is something that I've followed kind of off and on for a couple of years now is how Ireland's energy system is completely connected between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But with Brexit, there's sort of this invisible line that has cut it, but hasn't really. And the regulations have to keep going. And it creates a real legal mind bending thing for the people who are trying to work out how you do the energy transition there. And they were really calling for this regulatory certainty, because, you know, if you're working on one set of rules and then suddenly they change, that's really quite difficult. And yeah, I remember I did something on the ETS in Ireland and how Northern Ireland is in the EU ETS and the rest of the UK is in the British ETS. And it's so complicated how they work together. And that being highlighted, I think, is really important. Yeah, the politics of that currently are quite interesting as well, I guess, with Northern Ireland getting... Sinn Féin uh, legislature and everything like that, how that would affect it going forward. Yeah, I think that's what prompted it, was this sudden realisation that they have a government again. If you speak to people on the island, it actually has quite a sophisticated energy grid when it comes to incorporating renewables. So in some ways, it's actually quite a good case study for looking at how you integrate renewables. It's also just in quite a vulnerable place. The thing I was kind of interested by most this week was this report about how United States air quality limits will basically go down to the same level they were 20 years ago, even though all of these big improvements have been made from road transport and energy generation because of climate change largely. Heat waves push the smog back down, means that it's worse air, and wildfires becoming more likely to happen because of high temperatures, arid conditions. And that was a bit depressing because you always hear about tipping points and 
vicious circles and cycles and you know the amazon becoming a net emitter of emissions but here you are with air quality where all of this good work that's been really fought for for 20 years in the u.s could well just be wiped out i think that's one of the real difficulties with this whole industry is that you can do everything you can and then something else may prevent it you have to treat everything at once which for governments is very expensive and very difficult but has to be done I mean, even back home as well, I, I read about it after did the episode on this US thing this week at, um, in the UK, wood-burning stoves, which have gone up in popularity because of cost of living almost, because burning wood for heat is cheaper than paying your gas bill, is going to do the same where it's going to wipe out all of this improvement that's been made by getting cleaner cars on the roads. And suddenly you've got this extra complicated dimension of right we can't really stop people from doing this because they haven't got any money or we can't politically do it anyway so what do they do and it was even the government that came out and said look all the particular matter is going back to the levels that we had before and this is why and what about the episodes you did this week was any of them uh, more interesting to work on than others or the one that was really interesting for me was the one that I did yesterday about the US LNG delay to the new export permits. It's really interesting when you get two people who just have completely different perspectives on it. So I had someone who's involved in climate campaigning basically saying, you know, this is really good. It's a first step towards really tackling fossil fuel emissions. This LNG is related to a lot of methane emissions. And then someone from the fossil gas industry basically saying, well, if the US isn't giving that gas, where are places like the EU going to be getting it from? And are we going to be getting it from Russia, which has worse methane than the US uh, and is currently invading another country and other countries, which also may not be hugely reliable? And I think underpinning all of this is the need to transition. But where we get the gas from whilst we transition is also an interesting question. And yeah, I think it's one of those ones where you just leave the listeners with the two points of view and say, decide for yourselves. Especially in the format, right? You've got 10 minutes or so to, to introduce this topic and give people a taste of it. And it's so complicated. I mean, I think this particular story as well suffers a bit from people reading the headline sometimes and not really understanding it. Again, it's all going to be politics again with a certain election in November, right? Yeah, it's interesting because I did ask, and it didn't end up in the episode, I did ask the climate campaigner whether she thought this was political. And she was saying that this is something she expects the next administration to also uphold. If that next administration is a Trump administration, who knows? I mean, someone described Trump to me as a jack-in-the-box the other day. You've got no idea what they're going to pop up, and when he's going to pop up and what he's going to say when he does. But I think you could assume that a Trump administration would be more friendly towards LNG permits, shall we say. One thing I read this week was, uh, it was by a climate campaigner, I forget which group, apologies to whoever's listening, but it was that we have an urgent need to rebrand LNG, liquefied natural gas, as liquefied fossil gas, so it should be LFG, to really start hammering home to people that natural gas needs to be branded differently and that will somehow take over the public consciousness and people will realize that it has all these bad connotations as well. Yeah, I find it interesting that there is such a naming issue when it comes to gas, even just using the shorthand gas. We're not talking about that. We're talking about fossil gas. We're not talking about even hydrogen or biomethane. And as we do transition, yeah, I find in my articles, I'm thinking, oh, I probably ought to be specifying what I'm talking about here. 
linguistics and language is all important. I guess just decarbonizing stuff is probably a bit more of a priority. But uh, <laughs> we'll deal with the semantics later. So for me, my favorite episode, I think, was this one about the Dutch grids being in a total shambolic state, basically. People can go listen to it to get more detail about it. But the thing that I enjoyed most about it was talking about something that has been so far, in my mind, at least theoretical, that grids will be a massive problem for the energy transition if they're not upgraded and built out and things. But to actually hear someone, an expert, saying it's happening, it's already having an impact on Dutch energy policy. People can't get access to the grid. They can't build wind and solar. EVs and heat pumps are sorely needed to really help the grid build out as well. It was quite good, I think, because these are the kind of lessons that other governments are going to have to learn from in order to avoid that. I mean, it's probably too late for a lot of them where this infrastructure needed to be built five or 10 years ago even. But then to get this list of ideas that the government is working on or experts have advised be considered, it's not just about building pylons, it's also things like permits. You can start building stuff before they're finalized could be an idea as well. And I think the more that that kind of idea is put into the energy zeitgeist, if you will, the more these problems seem a bit more surmountable rather than oh no there's no way that we're going to be able to deal with this because it's going to take until 2035 to build a pylon from here to there so that was quite interesting it's really interesting to look at where the issues are and like you say go from something which is very theoretical to something which is actually we're seeing in real time there is an issue and also look at solutions beyond just building more stuff I think that's something in most areas of the energy transition, we have to just work out how to be more efficient. Optimizing what we've already got. And then if you need more, build it, pay for it, if you can. And what about next week? Are you working on anything as of yet? Keeping an eye on something? I have no plans so far, which, you know, is always good. Well, it's lucky for some. I think one of the things that when I do start planning, I will have on my mind is the ETS price dropping quite low. I think that was in one of your headlines this week. And for me, I'm really interested in, is this just weather and high gas storage? Or is this something which, and even if it is those, is this something we're going to need to address? Because we always hear the emissions trading scheme is, you know, the, the pillar of EU decarbonisation. We've now got European Commission saying that's a model that it wants to take around the world and help other countries roll out if they want it and actually we really need to make sure that it's effective in the EU and I think people have different perspectives on what an effective price is but 58 euros I think it dropped to is quite low so yeah I'm really interested to see where it goes from here and what trends we're expecting and and whether it's going to be enough if we do see those types of lows. So yeah, if anyone has any opinions on that, please do get in touch. Let me know in the contribution section. Absolutely. I'd love to to hear whether or not it is just mild winters or gas prices being low. There must be something else going on there as well. Like you say, 58 euros and it's expected to go lower as well. I remember someone, some analysts saying last year when it was around the 100 euro mark and confidently saying that as soon as it goes into triple digits, it'll never come below again. And voila, 12 months later or whatever, it's going towards 50 rather than 150. So it's not particularly the direction people wanted it to go. And I mean, particularly after the reform as well, you know, 
that was supposed to drive it. I'm not sure when that actually becomes effective, but you know, there were pushes to make it more effective and now it's kind of slipping back slightly. It's very worrying, especially like you say, that they, the EU wants other parts of the world to adopt it. Well, if they haven't got it working properly after nearly 20 years, then there's work to be done. Me next week, there's an episode of the Policy Dispatch coming out about Indonesia and what's going on there. One of the biggest emitters in the world, really co-dependent, just had an election as well. I talked with a very interesting expert and she goes into various different things that the country's doing, how it's going to spend billions of euros that have been pledged to it by international donors. So that'd be quite interesting to listen to. And I've mentioned the US air quality report thing. I managed to get an interview with one of the authors. So I'm going to ask them a bit more about how they've come to the conclusions they have and what they actually think that regulators need to do to prevent what they're predicting from coming true, basically. So that will come out sometime next week. We're open to suggestions, of course, as well. Get in touch in the contributions section. Let us know about any ideas or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Send us feedback. Get in touch on Twitter and LinkedIn everywhere. Email as well. Everything's in the show notes, so they should go there and get in touch. Many thanks for joining us today. I'll be back on Monday with more, so please do join me then. We've plenty of weekend listens and reads for you, including the latest episode of What Matters and a new deep dive on biogas. A reminder that non-members can only listen to Monday and Friday episodes of The Jolt, so if you'd like to get your full five a week, then head on over to foresightmedia.com forward slash onboarding forward slash The Jolt. That'll get you a month's free no-strings access. It's a great time to join our ever-expanding community. Thanks again to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make the job possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the Jolt.